Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Hello, this is Human Ordinary, documentaries about culture, relationships, and all those things that make us human. I'm Sam Loy. Welcome to the show. Massive, big, extra special shout out to Hunter Persky from Victoria, who is our latest supporter on Possible.com. You can join Hunter and the rest of the gang by searching for the show on Possible. And then for less than the cost of a mad magazine, topical, you can get access to ad-free and early episodes, bonus content, merch, and our eternal gratitude. Now, I'm going to dispense with the rest of the preamble this time because I think the story we have for you today should just really stand on its own. It comes from Australia's wild, wild northwest, vast cattle country, kind of up near Darwin on a map. This story comes from human ordinary producer Mick Cavazzini. Okay. Uh, My name's uh, Jeff Allen, Jeff with a G, and uh, I'm 86 years of age, and... uh, I ran away from home at 15. Things went uh, too good there. I would have gone anywhere. I would have gone to the moon to get away from home. So um, being out in the West there and and by myself, well, as a kid I'd been by myself. Uh, I didn't have the opportunity to have any friends really. So being on my own in the bush, it, it didn't worry me at all. Of course, I learned quickly. I made a lot of mistakes. Um... When Jeff Allen ran away from home, he went about as far as anyone could imagine at the age of 15. First, he hitched a ride from Sydney up to Rockhampton, halfway up the Queensland coast, where he started mustering cattle on horseback. Jeff's a stocky fellow with a full head of silver hair. He's sunken into his favourite recliner, and his eyes drift to the middle distance as he remembers this time. Funnily enough, uh, I had learnt to ride on Manly Beach. <laughs> they had ponies down there. And I used to go up, up and down from Manly to Queenscliff uh, on these ponies. So uh, I could ride when I went out there. And the first rough horse I got on, it bucked. Um, and it didn't throw me, but all the other ringers laughed because uh, the way I stopped there. One bloke said, well, he didn't come off, <laughs> so I must have looked aside trying to hang on to the thing. <laughs> After a couple of seasons proving himself as a rider, Jeff applied for the head stockman job at Ord River Station over 3,000 k's away, or 2,200 miles in old money. Even today, it would take you 40 hours of straight driving. But for young Jeff, it was a month of patiently cadging lifts where he could. Past the Queensland border, the country becomes really tough. Imagine red dirt and spindly grass. Imagine limestone outcrops and canyons gouged by the summer monsoons. There were no roads. Um, There were just tracks. That would have been 1951, I suppose. And the tracks, they just went from station to station. 
you never travelled at night because um, it was too dangerous. There was always donkeys or horses or cattle suddenly running across the road. Uh, and of course, what was a hurry? There was no hurry in those days. Jeff travelled across the Northern Territory into a mythical region known as the Kimberley. A few of the cattle stations in Australia's top end are over 14,000 square kilometres in size. For American listeners, that's the size of Connecticut, and we don't call them ranches out here. Jeff's story is about the ebb and flow of a season at the more modest Ord River station. If you've seen the movie Australia, that's the homestead where it was filmed. But this is no Baz Luhrmann tale. During the dry months between March and October, Jeff would muster cattle on horses he had to break in himself. Skill as a horse ringer could earn you fame across the north, and Jeff would occasionally be joined in the stock camp by the legendary Jack Vitnell. The other 30 stockmen were all Aboriginal men from the Jaru people, on whose country the station was established. Jeff remembers fondly Bunda and Churchill and old Mulga Bill. I want you to know that the term blackfella he sometimes uses comes from Aboriginal Creole and still gets widely used today. Well, the season starts in March and uh, we would get the horses in and the horses were no trouble to muster because they'd always hang around their own water hole uh, or a good patch of feed and then we'd draft off the colts and every man would have uh, two colts to break in. The horses never bucked after you broke them in It's the following year after he's been let go, that's when he'll buck because he sees you and he thinks, oh my God, look at this bloke, I've got to put up with him again. I'll get rid of him. And um, of course, some horses um, spin around and uh, try and kick you uh, and the odd one will try and bite you. So a lot of men will let those horses alone. But you get a bloke like Jack Bittnell, um, he came to Horse Creek. I'd been to Horse Creek for a number of years. Nobody knew me. Jack was there half an hour. Everyone knew him. There was another horse I know, uh, remember in particular, and um, we were running them through the yard, uh, like you run the horses through, and you ask the, uh, the blackfellas, whose horse is that? Or Jimmy, that one? Or he head stockman horse, that one? Or he night horse? And uh, this big black thing went through and there was dead silence and uh, finally we're told that he dangerous horse to ride, he uh, rear up and fall back and try and kill a man. Uh, well, of course, Jack couldn't get on that horse quick enough and he went over and jumped on it bareback. And as the horse reared its head, ready to uh, rear back on its back, Jack plowed it over the head with a rail. And that had never happened to that horse before, so he fell down on his four feet, shook his head, and it could buck all it wanted. Uh, it wouldn't throw Jack. Then he said, open the gate, let him go. And he galloped around the yard and outside um, outside the yard, all bareback, and came back. And he said, that's how you treat a horse? Don't let him play up. The other thing he'd do if uh, you couldn't catch a horse, he'd, uh, he'd get down on his face and crawl along the ground, holding the bridle. And he'd crawl right along to the horse and the horse would be standing there looking at him and snorting and wondering what was going on. And Jack would reach out with his hand and grab their front feet and it could drag him around the, the yard 
and, and Jack wouldn't let go. And eventually then he'd get one hand up, grab it by the neck and put a bridle on. But uh, as I say, there weren't many like that. I describe him as the king of the north, really. No horse could throw him. Once the horses were broken in, the men would head into the rugged country to round up wild cattle. They'd be out from the station homestead for weeks at a time, camping under the blazing Milky Way. When Jeff entered country he wasn't familiar with, he would be guided by the Jaru men. Remember that Aboriginal people had been in these parts for 65,000 years, and Jaru was just one of over 100 languages across the north. After the stations were established in the late 1800s, the worst of Australian colonial brutality was repeated here up until the 1930s. But by the time Jeff arrived at Ord River in 1951, he observed a sort of functional coexistence between the white station manager and the traditional custodians of the land. I'll explain more of the history at the end, but for the moment I want you to see the place through the eyes of a naive 18-year-old on his first adventure away from home. So once the horses are broken in, you shoe them up. Each man had six horses, and uh, you've got eight or ten uh, pack horses with you, and um, the horse tailor uh, would get the horses on camp about three o'clock in the morning. Uh, you'd hear them, they all had um, bells, or their hobbles, and their hobbles would uh, jingle under their neck. The cook would have the fire going, and uh, he'd cook you a johnny cake and a slab of uh, salt meat, and uh, off we would go and start mustering. Now, it wasn't that early because you were absolutely buggered after 12 hours galloping around. We just went to sleep in our swags. And the idea of getting up early was to get around the cattle because they have been let go since the previous October, and the moment they saw you, they took off. So if we could get around behind the ones we wanted to muster, when they took off, they'd take off to where, towards where we wanted them to go, was towards the Bronco Yard. Uh, and of course it wasn't as easy as that, there'd be bulls wanting to get away and, and uh, they'd race out of the mob and we'd have to gallop after them and jump off and pull them down by the tail. So uh, say I'm galloping along this bull, alongside this bull, and we'd try and let him go a bit so he got winded. And then I'd slip off my horse, grab him by the tail, and then take my hat off and uh, give him a sniff of my hat. And he sort of charged the hat, and then he's off balance, so I pull him down and I put his uh, tail between his legs and I just sit there. The mate then gallops up uh, and uh, he pulls out the horn saw and uh, he sits on its head and cuts its horns off right close to the head. And then he... uh, Cuts its uh, dusters out, uh, just cut the purse and then yank them out and then cut them off. And yeah, the bull would give a bit of a bellow. <laughs> Jack, uh, Jack Bittnell slipped once and um, he had all the tail. He was about to pull it down. He slipped on the limestone and uh, he fell over. And the bull turned around and uh, charged him. Jack was lying on his back and the bull put his head right over Jack's. There was a horn this side and a horn that side. And Jack just didn't move. It slobbered in his face and then it up and went. And uh, it must have taken some guts to lie there like that. Yeah. Jeff and the Aboriginal stockmen would ride like this from dawn to lunchtime. Then they'd grab a fresh horse and keep mustering cattle until dark, 
they had to get the animals to one of the corrals scattered at each corner of the massive station. There was plenty of bellowing and dust rounding the bulls into the yard, until finally the men could stop for a cigarette and a feed before collapsing in their swags. The next morning they would hold the bulls down one by one to be branded with a burning iron on the shoulder, and one by one the herd would grow towards their target of 4,000 bullock. This was the routine of the stock camp, day in, day out. After six weeks of running such rough country, the horses would be shattered and they'd be left to run free. Each man would have to round up another team for the next stint, but they could return briefly to the comforts of the station's central homestead. At Ord River there was a bunkhouse for the white men and workshops to make saddles and horseshoes. The station manager and his wife had their own house and another hut for a dining room. The kitchen was separate again and that's where all the stockmen would get fed. But the Jaru men had the rest of their clan camped about a mile away under bark lean-tos. The women too would be given jobs tidying up around the homestead. Some of this is hard to listen to, but I think it's an important snapshot of a time and place that most Australians would know little about though it's still within living memory. And uh, they just camped out in the open under their um, whirlies, you know. Um, They had proper huts built for them, but they didn't use them because they're too bloody hot. Uh, So they they camped down there. They ate at the the wood heap uh, at the back of the kitchen, and they had uh, a diet of uh, a slab of bread and beef three times a day. So then uh, the uh, blacksmith and the saddler and uh, the stockman or ringers, they ate uh, in the kitchen. And then the head stockman, he ate up at the dining room and get ten times uh, better feed. And in the dining room is the bookkeeper, the storekeeper and the manager. And it was a real business getting fed because old Joe Walker, he'd sit up at the head of the table the, the black girls used to bring the food in in big trays and then plonk it down in front of Joe. And then he'd scowl and look at you and he'd say, how do you want your beef cut, Jeff? And then his wife was there. Vegetables, Jeff? Thank you, Mrs Walker. And then it would be passed down hand to hand to hand and I was down the bottom. And all the while, there's this flaming punker, a couple of white sheets hanging down, almost touching our heads. And um, hidden behind it, God help you couldn't let her be seen, was a black girl. And she pulled the rope and the punkers went swaying, swaying. I nearly burst out laughing when I first saw it. Time for a break from this strange campfire story. When we get back, how to close out the season without getting killed by cattle, booze or pub fights. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. This episode of Human Ordinary is sponsored by Movement Sunglasses. Listeners of the show will probably know that Movement has been a loyal sponsor of Human Ordinary over the last couple of years, but I mostly bang on about their watches. This time, I wanted to clue you in about something else they do equally well, and that is sunglasses. 
So here's my deal with Sunnies. I've only ever bought cheap pairs because the fancy ones are too expensive and I don't like getting ripped off. But then the cheap ones always end up breaking because they're cheap and I just have to buy more. The good folk at Movement understood this and went about making quality, trendy Sunnies at an affordable price. You don't have to choose between style and function because these babies have both. Plus, you can get them polarized and they start at just $60 bucks. They've got heaps of styles to choose from, but mine are the runaway. Not only do they keep me from needing to squint all day, but they're also really strong and make me look as flash as Flash Gordon in the flash in a lightning storm. Now that's flash. Listeners to the show can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns just by going to mvmt.com slash human. Come see why movement keeps growing and check out their expanding collection. That's mvmt.com slash human. Come and join the movement. This episode of Human Ordinary is sponsored by ShipStation. Down at Human Ordinary HQ, we've decided to start offering subscriber-only rewards for listeners. Some of those rewards include merchandise, and any time we get an order, we need help shipping all the stuff out. Fortunately for us, there's ShipStation, the number one e-commerce solution for online sellers. What ShipStation is all about is finding the best shipping carrier based on your needs, so you always get the best deal. ShipStation work with all the major shipping carriers like FedEx, UPS, Australia Post, USPS, and heaps more. They even offer discounts on shipping costs, letting a one-person shop access the same postage that is usually reserved for the massive retailers. Whether you are selling on eBay, Amazon, Shopify, or over 100 popular selling channels, ShipStation lets you access all your orders from one simple dashboard. And right now, Human Ordinary listeners get to try ShipStation for free for 60 days when you use the promo code HUMAN. You can start your free trial without even entering a credit card number. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the little microphone at the top, and type in HUMAN. That's ShipStation.com and promo code HUMAN. ShipStation. Make ship happen. Before the break, we heard how a day's work for Jeff Allen would involve pulling down wild bulls and cutting off their balls. Remember, it's the 1950s and there aren't any supermarkets in the dusty top end of Australia. This hard work would go on all the way until October. Then a couple of herds were handed over to drovers from Queensland. They would take them a thousand miles back east along the barren Murrunjai track. Jeff and the Aboriginal stockmen would spend the last month of the season on the road themselves, taking a mob of bullock into Wyndham. And we're given a date where we have to have bullocks ready for the driver at a certain place at a certain date. So uh, we used to send off um, two mobs of 1,500 into Queensland and uh, two mobs of 500 into Wyndham. So then uh, we'd muster up these cattle and you've got to hold them. You've got to watch them at night. There's no yards to uh, put them in. And then there's wild cattle running into the mob. There's cows calling out for their mates, bulls running into the mob. And it's, uh, it's quite a to-do to, to hold them. We'd have four men, five men sometimes on watch. Uh, normally a watch is two hours. And uh, 
often we'd be there for half the night. Uh, two things could happen. You could have a rush, which meant that uh, they all rushed and they all go together, but you can block them up and bring them back onto the camp. They might rush a couple hundred yards. Or there was a smash, and a smash was when you lost the lot. And uh, sometimes you'd hear over the two-way radio from a drover, uh, had a smash last night, please muster Lissadell Bullocks. And if there was a stock camp nearby, they'd always help you. There was a stock girl years ago, before my time, um, only relating this as it was related to me, uh, but she worked in her father's uh, droving camp. And uh, when she did take up with a bloke, uh, he was the wrong sort of bloke, really. He was a, a horse thief. Uh, they met at a, uh, at a cattle trough going across uh, the Murrinjai. Uh, and so she said, if you want to ride with me and Dad, you better drop those horses, which he did. So everything was going all right. And uh, then one night um, he was on watch and he left the cattle and came into her swag. And she was worried about the cattle. And he said, oh, he said, I've stoked the fire up. The quiet as old milkers, don't worry about them. And, uh, of course, um, they took off and uh, went through the camp and uh, killed a pair of them. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, at the end of October, the horses and the men are buggered, so uh, you close down the stock camp. Uh, any good men are kept on. But um, the Ord River, or the Mistake Creek Blacks, they were on their own country. They were Their parents and their grandparents had been the original tribe on that area. So it was their home. They didn't want to go anywhere else. That was their home. So... At the end of October, they went walkabout, so they went around their country and, and they'd go out and paint up their, uh, retouch their paintings and they'd walk off uh, all painted up with spears and uh, their boomerangs and live off the land for four or five months. And they would go walk about until the following uh, end of February. Then they'd come back ready to, uh, to put the next season in. And they really enjoyed galloping around on good horses and a bit of good tucker. And a, in fact, uh, some nights I could hardly sleep because um, they'd be uh, corroborating and uh, they'd make a corroboree out of anything, somebody falling off their horse or uh, I might be scratching around to get me tobacco tin out and I've forgotten to undo the button, you see. Well, they'd laugh at that and they'd talk about that and make a song about it. They were very happy people, very happy. Never fought amongst themselves, uh, not at all. So I never had any problem uh, with the boys. We hadn't been mates. You weren't allowed to be mates, but uh, you could um, you could get on. And in particular, uh, I got to know old Bill. And Bill was a sensible old chap. He was about 65 or 60 when I knew him, I suppose. He was head boy. There was always a head boy. You'd meet at the fire each night, and uh, the head boy would come over from his fire, and you'd just discuss uh, the mustering the following day, what we're going to do, and then he'd go back to his fire and I'd sit by my lonely fire. He was keen on throwing bulls, the same as I was, so he and I used to work together throwing bulls. 
So um, uh, they really enjoyed themselves, yeah. And then back for the season, galloping around. Money didn't come into the equation. They got everything they wanted. The girls got two and six a week and the boys got five bob. They got um, a hat whenever they wanted one, uh, a couple of pairs of uh, uh, shirts and trousers, which they might gamble away and you'd have to give them another one. They were great gamblers. We wouldn't let them have cards, but they always got out of them somehow. They played kunz. And no one could understand Kunz, but all of a sudden they'd be playing away and Blackfellow would go, Kunz, Kunz, <laughs> and he'd win. <laughs> no one could follow the game if you watched. <laughs> when Jeff got to Wyndham, he'd count the cattle off at the meatworks a couple of miles out of town. This was attached to a jetty for the barges that came in on the wide, muddy estuary. And until the monsoon arrived, the meatworks had a bigger population than the town itself. But it didn't have a pub. So once the animals were offloaded, you'd have to ride into the one-street town for a drink. And then uh, you, you were free to ride through the works and across the marsh and into town and tie your horse up. There was only uh, there was the, the hotel, um, there was Tommy Cross, the baker, uh, there was a police station, a couple of houses... There were three Chinese shops. Fong Fan up the end of town, Jimmy Lee Tong in the middle and Ji Hong yet. And the shops were stocked with everything. Whatever you wanted, they had, you know, saddles hanging from the roof and uh, everything, everything at all. Um, I went into Jimmy Lee Tong's store for a hat and uh, so I went to pay. He said, double or quits? I said, right, I lost he said, double or quits again? I lost again? Double or quits again? I said, go to buggery. But <laughs> it cost me three times the price of a, of a hat. <laughs> and you'd go over to the pub and have a few beers. It's amazing, really. I mean, all of a sudden, you're in the pub, you've got company, a couple of barmaids to talk to, other ringers. Of course, they always um, judge a man by how you can fight and how you can ride. Well, uh, Jack and a few of us were down at Cowboy Collins's uh, butcher shop at uh, Catherine, having a few drinks, and um, the mad ringer came down and he said, Jack, there's a bloke up at Kirby's pub, reckon said he's going to give you a hiding. And this other bloke that did six years for rape, and he said, Vitnal, Vitnal, all I hear is Vitnal. I'd like to see him, I'll give him bloody Vitnal. Now, there's a few ways you can handle that. You can ignore it, or you can leave town, or if you're Jack Bittnell, point him out. Come up and point him out. So up they go, or up we go. We wanted to watch this. And this big, ugly bloke, full of dead thing, having a drink. And Jack tapped him on the shoulder. He said, I'm Jack Bittnell. Oh, you're him, are you? Is that all you are? Anyway, the next thing, Jack hit him, and hit him, and hit him, and hit him. Just went like a windmill straight into it. And uh, that's how he won so many of his fights against heavier blokes. He didn't sum the bloke up. He rushed straight in. (laughs) For the Aboriginal stockmen, going to town wasn't such a freewheeling lark. This was a period when Aboriginal people did not have the right to drink, to vote, or to own property where they chose. 
On some of the cattle stations, the Aboriginal workers were only given a fraction of their promised wages, and this would be legally justified under the so-called Aboriginal Protection Act. This was the same law that sanctioned removal of part Aboriginal children from their families. The Stolen Generation. Uh, You had to have um, what was called a dog ticket to get in the hotels if you were part Aboriginal. And to get the uh, dog ticket, which was properly called your rights, your citizenship rights, you had to go before a magistrate and you had to get a white person of quite some standing, either the publican or a station manager, to speak on your behalf. Uh, And then you got your ticket. And then if you went into a hotel, you had to show your ticket and then you were served a beer. And of course, they hated that, the dog ticket. I remember I was yard building with a fella and uh, we went into the Wyndham Hotel and uh, young Des G, the son of the uh, licensee, he said, who's your mate? I said, he's right, he's got his, uh, he's got his rights. And I don't think he did, but anyway, nothing was said. Yes, and very few uh, blacks had their rights. A lot of them wouldn't go. They wouldn't... Uh, lower themselves to go and ask, you know, and they'd get their grog anyway because we'd give them a bottle of plonk. And, of course, there was two ways of getting six months in Fanny Bay in those days. One, if you gave a black fellow a bottle of plonk, and the other one was if you were caught cohabitating with a native woman. Six months up in uh, or you could get married, except one bloke, Colin Cedar Green. Uh, he fell in love with this girl on Wave Hill, and uh, got, he was a travelling... Saddler, and when he'd finished doing up the gear at Wave Hill, he had to go to Limbunya and he wanted her to go with him. So uh, he uh, put her in a four gallon drum, empty four gallon drum, and put some teased hair, which saddlers use on top. And uh, before he could uh, get out the gate, uh, her mother went to uh, Tom Fisher, the manager, and said, That uh, cut him and take my girl he got him in that car so uh, Tom Fisher waited up at the gate and uh, when Colin pulled up he went round and opened the the back door of the van and and here was this girl there and uh, Colin burst into tears and within a week uh, they uh, opened his uh, door one morning because he hadn't come down to breakfast and there he was uh, uh, lying on the bed with his his, uh, throat cut all over this woman that he couldn't have. But the country does that to you. Little things, I mean, um, there's been murders happened and uh, the judge will only give a man, say, 10 years for murdering his mate because he knows that things are different and get magnified. The, The things that used to happen at that dining room, the way they used to squabble, uh, they were just like children. Everything is so much more magnifying because there's nothing else to talk about. <laughs> just the station, just those people there. No papers, no radio. Uh, the radio we got at early in the morning, about three o'clock, if we're in at the station, was Radio um, Australia uh, transmitting in Indonesia to Indonesia. And we used to call it the Sidera Sidera program because uh, just before the music came on, the announcer would say Sidera Sidera. 
The other one would be uh, Radio America, transmitting to Southeast Asia, and they had a theme song of Duke Ellington's um, You Must Get the A-Train, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And that used to come on at 3 o'clock. So, uh, yeah, no news at all. We're totally isolated. The first we knew of a hurricane was when the roof blew off. You see, you've got to realise it was a totally different life. But, but then you, you get absorbed into it and it, it becomes a way of life. But um, I never got lonely. Only the time I rode back after delivering cattle. And all of a sudden... You had at the nine mile, there was a bore at the nine mile, and um, packing up your gear, mustering up the horses, and out you go on the lonely track back to the station. It's a dreadful feeling. After a decade in the outback and two skull fractures, Jeff decided he'd never get back on a wild horse. He spent a couple more years building fences and driving trucks, but none of this had the buzz of breaking in horses, and there wasn't much female companionship to be found either. When Jeff finally went back to Sydney, he says it took him two years to feel normal again, surrounded by so many people. But in the hostel where he began renting a room, he immediately met Pam, and they've been married ever since. As for Jack Vitnell, the gun ringer, he would never settle down, and ended up drinking himself to death at the age of 41. For the Aboriginal stockmen that Jeff and Jack had ridden with, things began to change dramatically. The pressure about equal pay came to a head in 1966, when Gurindji stockmen at Wave Hill Station in the Northern Territory marched off work. They also drew attention to the desecration of waterholes and trampling of Indigenous crops by oblivious cattle and men. The strike caught the attention of white Australia, and in a 1967 referendum, the rights of full citizenship and equal pay were granted to Aboriginal people. Sadly, this would have unintended consequences for those who were living on country only at the whim of the station managers. Back on the station, things changed a lot. Um, The station kept them all employed. So you had girls helping the uh, cook in the kitchen. They were the kitchen girls. You had the the laundry girls. the girls that swept up the yard to keep the dust down, and, of course, the boys that could work were all out in the stock camp. And then there'd be, oh, there'd be 30 pensioners probably, and they were all fed. And um, when that um, new uh, law came in, the stations were told they had to pay the uh, workers £9.6 and 8 a week, which was the award wage. And they couldn't afford to pay all those people that money. I mean, they didn't need all those girls sweeping up and everything. So what did they do? They got all the pensioners, the whole lot, put them in a truck and took them into the town of Horse Creek. And all over the Kimberley that happened, they took them into the towns of Wyndham, Horse Creek, Fitzroy Crossing, and dumped them there. The stages said, well, the government's passed this law, the government can look after you. And uh, suddenly, instead of having to hopefully find a white bloke who'd uh, sell them a bottle of Plonk once or twice a year, they could go in up to the gallon licence. They didn't go to the pub, they'd go to the gallon licence and they'd buy cartons of grog. 
And uh, apart from the uh, apart from the referendum, about that time, the road graders appeared and started uh, grading the roads. And once the roads were there, the road trains could come. And so the driver said goodbye uh, because it all started to go by road train. Yeah. It's just a totally different life. And so I went back, uh, I left there 63 and went back in 1990. Uh, I inquired about some of my old stock boys, Bunder and Churchill. He'd been finished, he'd been finished. Killed themselves in cars, you know, driving, drunk and everything. And uh, it, it was terrible. When we got up to Wyndham, I wanted to see old Mulga Bill, so um, we had to go to a, a dry commune, which was just a, a, a camp area with a couple of tin sheds. And uh, we went there, and all these blackfellas were just sit, sitting around. So I said to this blackfellow, One jelly Mulga Bill, geology? Oh, oh, man, talk a language. Uh, he said, Here, yeah, I was there. So we went over and uh, saw old Mulga Bill. He was in a hut there with another three old grey beards and uh, on a st- clutching a stick and he'd pissed himself, you know, terrible to see. I remember you, about all he could say. And um, yeah, a few of them were there, but they had nothing to do, just sitting there, just sitting in a dry community, got away from the grog. I thought how terrible it was. For many Aboriginal people, removal to the missions would be the last time they saw their own country. But the Wave Hill walk-off also sparked the land rights movement. In 1975, a leasehold title was given to the Gurindji people, the first of its kind in Australia. There's an iconic photo of their leader, Vincent Lingiari, being handed a fistful of soil by the Prime Minister Gough Whitlam. And an equally iconic song about this by folk singer Paul Kelly. To learn more about this history, check out the book Yijani, True Stories from the Gurindji. Online, you can hear historic recordings of the elders describe events in their own words, as well as the killings and sexual violence of previous decades at the hands of police and pastoralists. For a recent picture of culture on these lands, there's also the Yiwarakuju project, an Aboriginal perspective of the Canning Stock Route, which is the longest drover's track in the world. People along the route have been returning to the country they were removed from and rekindling song lines about the sacred waterholes that had made the track possible. I want to thank Jeff Allen for telling his own personal story like it was only yesterday. He's written a few books himself. Look for Bull Catchers and Outlaws of the Kimberley Underworld and a whole book of country ballads. Thanks to Dave Goldie for introducing me to his uncle Jeff and to all the people that got their ears on this to make it better. Pat, Donna, Bjorn, Eileen, Tybe, Sandra, Kevin, Emma, and of course, Team Human Ordinary. The great music came from Louis Edward Thorne, Nikolai Sune Block, and Blue Note Sessions. I'm Mick Cabazzini. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Mick for that sliver of life that I honestly didn't have much of an idea about. We'll post some links to Jeff's books and to more information about the era and about the country on our website. We've also got some audio of Jeff reading out one of his poems, which we'll release to supporters through Possible. Mick has another great podcast about the culture of medicine called Pomegranate Health. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Human Ordinary is produced in Melbourne and Sydney by Mick Cavazzini, Cinnamon Napard, May Jasper, and me, Sam Lloyd. Special thanks to Claire Tonti at Planet Broadcasting and Guy Scott Wilson at ACAST. Our artwork is by Fergal Quigley, and our theme music is by The Contortionist's Handbook. Score a free T-shirt, bonus content, and ad-free episodes by subscribing to Human Ordinary at Possible.com. For more info on the show, head to the website or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Anyway, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's it's up to you. (laughs) Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.